Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. Our Sunday services have now moved online and you can tune in every week for worship, prayer and our weekly sermon by going to christchurchlondon.org forward slash church hyphen at hyphen home. We're now going to hear the talk from this week's Church at Home service. Today we are concluding our series on Romans 12. We've looked at how we live out Christian life in community, that we are made to live lives of worship and that we are called to serve and love one another as a family. It has been a great series. And then in verse 14 and 17 to 21, Paul changes his focus to address our enemies, to those who don't love us and how we respond to evil. And there are two parts to Paul's emphasis. Firstly, on how God responds to evil and secondly, how we respond. And last week, uh, Liam preached his final sermon to us on how God responds to evil. So if you hadn't had a chance to listen to that, I'd encourage you to do so. And so this week, we'll be looking at how we respond. Now, some of the themes that we'll touch on are huge and libraries of books have been written on these subjects. And I'll be skimming some of them lightly or touching on them briefly. But please don't interpret the time we have to look at them today with their importance. And one of the interesting things about this kind of subject is that even the assumption that there is objective good and evil is contested. And one of the patterns of this world is that I can define good and evil for myself. Another view is that evil is just a social construct that has evolved to manipulate, to control, or simply to explain the human experience. We don't have time to go into some of the, the finer details of these arguments today. The scripture shows us or tells us that there is an objective reality to good and evil. God in his divine nature sets the standard for good and in scripture anything that opposes that vision is defined as evil. And we see this play out in society. There are some things throughout human history in whatever culture or society would be described as evil. Our lived experience is that evil is something that has a profound effect on who we are. When someone made in God's image is treated less than that, we see it for what it is, evil. Even though many might believe evil is subjective, we live in such a way that counteracts that belief. There are some things that are just wrong and it is right to call that out and work to reverse its effects. And Romans 12 is so helpful for us as we begin to grapple and understand this. And as we've seen over this series, this chapter is a short collection of verses that summarise the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then verses 1 and 2 are, if you like, the executive summary of what it means to follow Jesus. And then Paul goes on throughout this chapter to describe what that looks like in practice, what it looks like to offer your body as a living sacrifice, to not conform to the pattern of the world and be transformed by the renewal of our minds. When Paul uses this word uh, world, he's describing a system of values and practices that are so embedded in a culture that they can be hard to see, but come against the values and practices of scripture. Paul is imploring us not to conform, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might be able to discern his good, pleasing and perfect will. And one of the defining aspects of our world today is in what is being described as the culture wars. In fact, a recent article in the Times talked about how increasingly this is becoming the biggest dividing line amongst voters. The more traditional old divisions of North and South or rich and poor, they are less of a determining factor on how someone would vote. But instead, the so-called battle is now placed in what you think about certain cultural topics and issues. If you like your view on good and evil. 
But what this has resulted in is the demonising of the other side, increasing tribalism, and then stoked further by the anonymity and depersonalization of social media. It is being framed as a battle for our minds where there is little nuance, a divine set of values of good and evil, and cultural pressure to demonise those who think or live differently. The language of war is revealing. It's not a culture conversation or, or a, a culture debate, but a culture war. And that kind of language entails these questions. Whose side are you on? And who is the enemy? Eugene Cho, CEO of Bread for the World, has said that we live in an incredibly polarised world. We are conditioned to believe that it's us against them to identify who's with us or against us, allies or enemies. Of course, we'd need truth tellers and prophetic voices, but we also desperately need bridge builders and peacemakers. I think he's right. And these verses we'll look at today will help us get some clarity on how we are to live in this moment, but also to learn to understand what our, our posture should be in the face of evil as we seek to reflect Jesus and the way of life he calls his followers to live. So let's read the passage. And I've put in bold the verses that we are going to be focusing on today. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, firstly, a couple of caveats. Talking about evil can be a very sensitive topic. And this subject today, if it does stir up painful memories or experiences, please do speak and process with someone, either a friend or get in touch with the pastoral, or prayer, uh, pastoral team or prayer team. One of the beautiful things we've seen in this passage is that the church is a community of love and we are to mourn with those who mourn. I pray you are able to do that with us as a church. But what Paul is talking about here, I think he has a particular form of evil in mind, shaped by verses 1 and 2, but also verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now to be clear, I think scripture shows us that our response to any kind of evil should be consistent. But it seems to me that Paul is talking, and what Paul is talking about here is the type of evil that we might experience as a result of not conforming to the world, but trying to live out this vision for God's good, pleasing and perfect will. It's about how we live in the midst of a culture that sees things differently. I don't know if Paul did this intentionally, but as you, as you read through Romans 12, it gets more and more challenging the further you go. He starts talking about what God does in us, then how that affects our relationships within the church, and then to those outside of the church, including our enemies. It is an incredibly challenging passage. And the idea of showing love and compassion to your enemy was one that was completely unique. Social commentator Douglas Murray, who described himself as an uncom uncomfortable agnostic, uh, said in a debate with N.T. Wright that much of Christian thought picks up on other ideas around at the time, but nothing prepares you for the demand to love your enemy. And the philosopher Dallas Willard remarked that the mark of a mature disciple is being able to instinctively respond to your enemy with love. Now that is super, super challenging. And how can we do that? And what can we learn from this passage in our short time together? 
Now, Paul, he re repeats similar ideas to give us a pretty clear picture of what he is getting at, summarised by his concluding statement, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And I want to frame today's talk by looking at uh, the two ways those ideas work themselves out in our lives. How do we respond when evil comes our way? What could it look like to not be overcome by evil? And then the second is how we are proactive. How, how should followers of Jesus proactively seek to bring an end to evil whilst holding on to this tension of allowing room for God's wrath, as Liam talked about last week? What could it look like to, to, to overcome evil with good? So firstly, don't be overcome by evil. Now, the language Paul uses here, it has military connotations. The word overcome is the word, uh, the Greek word, nikeo, meaning to overpower or be conquered by. But Paul isn't, isn't describing a physical battle. Based upon everything he's he said before, Paul is describing the battle for our hearts and minds and how a transformed mind responds in the face of evil. I find it really interesting that it's, it's similar language to the language of our culture wars today in our time. But the action and the posture of how our response works itself out is very, very different. What Paul is encouraging us to do is, is not allow evil to govern our mind, to dictate our response, or to reciprocate evil for evil, and in doing so, continue this pattern of violence, of sin, and of evil. Now, evil can take many forms. It can be personal, from one person to another. We can see it in the treatment of others, or it can be systemic. It can be something that lurks, seen or unseen, in the values and practices of a society, and it can be incredibly complex. So how, how could we respond to evil? Well, firstly, we, we could, ignore it. We could see evil in the world and decide it's easier to turn a blind eye. In fact, over the years, some have interpreted Paul's words in verse 17, where he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, to mean exactly that. But if you are able to ignore the evil in the world, it's more than likely that you, you can do that because you are not directly affected by it, or worse still, you are a beneficiary of it. You can't ignore evil when it's staring you in the face. And peace is not the same as ignorance or passivity. Paul is, is not saying don't work for change or commit for justice or defend the poor. Scripture is literally filled with psalms and stories and teaching on how God will defend those who suffer evil, who suffer injustice and judge the powerful for not taking up their cause. In fact, seeking the good, weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn, as, as far as it depends on us, uh, to seek peace shows me a life that does all it can to reveal the love of Jesus to a broken world. Whilst knowing that, that there is some injustice that we, that we will not be able to change, God will ultimately bring justice. Author Dr. Crawford Loritz says on these passages that uh, Paul is not talking about not confronting evil. He's not talking about being silent when evil is committed. He doesn't want us to be complicit with evil. It doesn't mean you don't speak up and tell the truth. When Paul says that, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with everyone, I think it's more in line with Micah 6. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. But Paul isn't being naive here. He knows that Others may not choose to return our desire to live at peace. And so the temptation can be to respond in a second way. Rather than ignore it, we could repay it. We allow evil to dictate our response and continue this cycle of revenge. Now, the temptation to overcome evil with evil is incredibly potent. The desire for revenge is powerful. But I think Paul's reminder that God will ultimately have justice is key to this, as well as the distinction that justice and vengeance aren't the same thing. 
The psychologist Leon Seltzer gives some distinctions between justice and vengeance that I find really helpful. The first is that revenge is about cycles. It will continually repeat itself as revenge is given back and forth in increasingly serious ways. Evil only creates more evil. Whereas justice is about closure. It restores balance rather than bringing an opportunity to retaliate. Justice provides a return of equality and equity that is fair, whereas revenge is often acted out in a moment of rage. Justice should be considered and it should be objective. It's why in our court system, a third party decides how justice should be done. Paul's exhortation to not take revenge cannot be taken as an opportunity to ignore injustice. But there's also another important distinction here, and that's in the idea of forgiveness. Now, one interpretation of forgiveness is that uh, you do not seek justice, instead you forgive. But forgiveness does not remove the need for justice, nor does justice remove the call for forgiveness. You can forgive and seek justice at the same time. In fact, per the perfect example of this is the cross itself. Rachel Den Hollander, an American lawyer and advocate for victims of abuse, in the same article that Liam quoted from last week, she writes that an attitude of justice longs for wrongs to be made right and for wrongdoing to be punished. An attitude of forgiveness longs for the inclusion and restoration even of our enemies, for them to cross over from death to life. These two are compatible with one another. What is excluded is an attitude of hatred, vengeance and revenge, which longs for the destruction and exclusion of those who have harmed us. The cross was the way God chose to forgive sinners and uphold justice. The cross was the meeting place of justice and forgiveness. So we could ignore evil, we could repay it. Or thirdly, we could be consumed by it. Now what I mean by this is, is kind of the opposite of ignoring it. Instead, we are just so overcome by evil that we, that we lose hope. It becomes the defining thing in our lives and spills out into our emotional life, our relationships and our approach to faith. It comes to define us. And this is a response I have huge sympathy for. And the space to process and grieve is really important. And we see this in Jesus. In the moments before the cross, coming to terms with the evil he was about to experience as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus felt deeply. But in the midst of that pain, he's able to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Rather than be consumed by evil, the Bible gives us a tool in which to process and grieve the suffering and evil we experience, whilst, holding, whilst at the same time holding on to the hope that God will ultimately bring justice. And there's even a book named after it in the Bible, and that's The Process of Lament. Theologian Sung Chan Ra, in his commentary on Lamentations, describes lament as a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that's wholeheartedly communicated through lament. Lament is a practice that acknowledges the suffering and injustice of the world or of our own experience, but moves us to a place of hope and trust in a good God who cares, who sees and who hears. And we've seen already from this chapter that the church should be the place for us to mourn, to weep and to rejoice together. But Paul not only gives us this encouragement to, to not be overcome by the world, he also gives us a vision of how we can overcome it. The way to overcome evil is to overcome it with good. And I just love this vision. I think it's one that fits with our human experience. So many of the stories we continually tell are built upon the idea that the way to overcome evil is with good, even when it costs us something. The people we celebrate are people that live this out. And at the root of this is the core teaching of Jesus, to love, 
to love God, yourself, your neighbour and even your enemy. One commentary on Romans 12 says that Paul is not always talking specifically about love, but he keeps, keeps coming back to love as the single most important criterion for approved Christian behaviour. Often when we think about these kind of things, our minds go to some of the greats of history, people like Martin Luther King, who called a whole nation to live out this passage, or stories that have come uh, from the aftermath of the Holocaust or the Rwanda genocide and just the incredible forgiveness and reconciliation that has happened since. These stories, they move us and they inspire us. But the examples Paul gives, they are, they are just very ordinary. In verse 20, he quotes Proverbs 25 and says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, firstly, what does Paul mean when he goes on to say, in doing this, you heap burning coals on his head? Now, most commonly, this picture is used in reference to God's judgment. If your good actions do not lead to any kind of repentance or reconciliation, it's another reminder that God ultimately will bring justice. But Paul isn't asking us to respond with goodness as kind of another form of revenge that we can get one over on our enemy. Paul is just merely describing a possible response. Some might respond to your goodness and love and return it back to you. Others may not. But he's also clear that we are not responsible for the actions of others. Instead, Paul encourages us to do things that are simple and practical. And I think there's huge wisdom in that. Not only is it something that we can all relate to, but I would argue that in order for those incredible people and those incredible stories to leave such a legacy, they were built upon smaller, unseen acts of love and goodness. You may have heard of uh, Christopher Hitchens, one of the great new, new atheists, a, form a formidable speaker, author and debater. You may also have heard of Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project and one of the world's leading physicians. Collins also happens to be a follower of Jesus. The two men met at a debate on science and faith and their relationship didn't start out on the best of terms. Collins asked Hitchens a question on morality, to which Hitchens replied that he was shocked that one of the greatest scientific minds in the world would ask such a superficial and silly question. Not the greatest start. Here's two men who, publicly at least, could be seen as perhaps not enemies, but certainly rivals. They met again at various debates, but it wasn't until Hitchens was sadly diagnosed with cancer that their relationship fully developed. Collins reached out to Hitchens, knowing that with his scientific experience and knowledge, he could help. If you like, he, he saw his enemy was thirsty. And through that process of those various consultations, those, those conversations, a deep friendship developed. Collins said of the experience, it's a reminder of the fact that if we really want to understand each other, we can't be put off by those kind of superficial, admittedly sometimes difficult to listen to perspectives. There is real humanity in everyone. This was a guy who was intensely curious about everything. It was a guy who cared deeply about his wife and his daughter. It was a guy who was in many ways a little isolated, maybe a little lonely, who cherished the chance to develop a friendship, and especially with somebody who was very different from him. Hitchin sadly died, and Collins was invited to speak at his memorial service. He even wrote and performed a piece of music for the occasion, what he called the Hitchin's Sonata. Fifteen months before Hitchin's passed away, he described Francis Collins as one of the greatest living Americans and the best of the faithful. What an incredible picture of love, friendship and goodness. And what an example uh, of someone looking beyond difference and seeing the humanity in a, another person. And there is increasingly more opportunity to display that goodness 
in our digital world. If you're active online, perhaps this is one of the biggest countercultural opportunities for us to go beyond the culture war and have goodness and love as the core values for how we communicate. Paul's appeal is all about what flows out of a transformed mind. The pattern of the world may say to hate your enemies, but not so is you. Not only are you to show love to your own tribe or nation or people group, but to all, including your enemies. You cannot hate evil and then use it as a weapon against your enemy. Jesus even comments after his exhortation to love your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount that everyone loves their own side. It's the way it is. It's the, it's the pattern of the world. But instead, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though he was completely innocent, Jesus willingly went to the cross to express his love for his enemies, of which because of our own sin and shortcomings, we could all be counted amongst. Through his death and resurrection, we now have been given the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation to be called children of God and are now to live as part of that family by showing goodness and love to all. Think of those people you, you might struggle to forgive and to love. What's, what's great about this passage is that it's just simply asking us to feed them, to give them a drink, to serve their basic needs. What Christ asks us to do towards our enemies is nothing compared to the love he showed for us. When we were at our worst, he gave his life for us. Theologian Miroslav Volf said that forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But this isn't easy. In fact, I think displaying this kind of love is probably the hardest thing Jesus ever asked of us. But, but when lived out, it can be the most transformative and inspiring example of God's power living in his people. The letter to the church in Rome is an example of this. To many of the Jewish people, the Romans were the enemy. And yet now one of Paul's driving points to this church is how Jews and Romans who follow Jesus are to be united as one church. Once they would have considered themselves as enemies, now they're brothers and sisters. This letter is living proof of the transforming power of the gospel. How does evil get defeated? You can't overcome evil with evil. You do what Jesus did. You have to break the chain. And if we can embrace this way of living, we show the world in the most powerful way, the life transforming love of Jesus. As Esau Macaulay writes, I can forgive my enemies because I believe the resurrection happened. I am convinced that God who had the power to judge me did not. Instead, he invited me into communion with his son and through that union with the Messiah, I discovered the resources to love that I did not possess before. Will we, the church, refuse to live by the pattern of the world? Will we show the love that we have received ourselves and in doing so, not be overcome by evil in whatever form that might take, but like Jesus, overcome it with good. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to ChristChurchLondon.org.